So, how many of you uh, have seen the new Star Wars film, Rise of Skywalker? I know there's a few of us out there that have seen it. <laughs> uh, now, if you're, how many of you would say you haven't seen it, but you're a Star Wars fan of some sort? All right. Um, if, for those of you that are, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm about to ruin this for you. But, no, I'm not, no, 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 not the new movie. Calm down, everyone. It's really good, though. It is really good. Um, but when you're watching an epic battle in Star Wars, and you see, like, an X-Wing fighter take out a TIE fighter, right? And, and, and you're like, yeah! And there's, like, all these sounds of explosions and all that happening on the screen. That is not accurate. Space is dead quiet. Did you know that? If there is anything that happens in space, you don't hear it. So George Lucas, he totally threw us for a loop years ago when he started putting in explosions in space because it simply isn't reality. So sorry if that ruins Star Wars for you. You'll probably watch Star Wars now completely differently from this time forth. Um, but space is silent in a way that we don't experience on this earth. Like we actually cannot experience it um, here. Unless you enter a NASA chamber, they have one, that is utterly and completely devoid of sound. Totally. And so what they do is astronauts who are preparing to go into space, they, they found that, I guess that experience, I, I don't know because I've never been there, but the experience is so jarring that they have to prepare them to enter into that kind of silence. And so they go through these training regiments of going in this chamber and experiencing what space is going to be like. Now, this is what this chamber, in this chamber, this is what it's like. Um, in that chamber, you can hear all of your breathing. And you might go, okay, well, I, I can hear myself breathe at times. Okay. You can also hear your actual blood pumping through your body. You can hear bones, your bones rubbing against each other. Just think about that for a moment. You can actually hear your skin sliding over your muscles. Our body makes sounds we, we don't actually hear. We can hear our tendons creaking in that chamber. You can hear your organs churning, not just your stomach, but like a bunch of your organs actually processing and working. They, they say that after a while, people, when they first go in that chamber, they actually begin to hear voices that aren't actually there. Like they begin to hear things that aren't actually there because it's just so jarring. So that's a wonderful analogy that for me illustrates how difficult we find silence and solitude in our lives. We, we really don't know how to do it. And the, what we talked about last week, the push to hurry, the push to busyness, the push to activity in our culture that uh, we experience, it's made this practice of silence and solitude just so foreign to our lives. And we really don't know how to do it well. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to I talk about the practice of silence and solitude. Like this. No, we're going we're gonna to do more than that. But I want to I look at specific practices and disciplines that 
that help us specifically enter into the presence of God in our lives and create space for us to grow in relationship with God. Because that's really what this is all about when we talk about silence and solitude. We're, we're doing this, and, and we're doing this as a church because we're, we're entering into, as Carlin mentioned, this time of prayer and fasting here over the next two weeks. And so we want to have an intentionality to pursue the renewal of God's presence in us. It's one of the things you'll notice on the, on the cards that we have. We talk about the renewal of God's presence and how his presence in our lives brings renewal in our lives like nothing else. So we want to we be creating space to be intentional in seeking God. And prayer and fasting is a discipline that increases our desire for more of God. That's, that's one of the things that it does really, really well. And uh, it, was, it was interesting because after preaching on hurry last week, um, I, got, I got a lot of, of positive feedback. And, uh, and I think that it was, there was some real thought-provoking things that people were processing. Um, and I'm sure for many of you that I didn't hear from it was thought-provoking. It was for me. Um, but Jen, she came and she mentioned to me, she said, I, I feel led to pick up this book, The Celebration of Discipline by, by Richard Foster. And I don't know if, how many of you have, have read this book. It's an old book. Not that old. Um, but she, she said she felt um, one of the first chapters is reading uh, a chapter on meditation. And he talks all about that. And he begins that chapter. This is what he states. He says, In contemporary society, the devil majors in three things. Noise, hurry, and crowds. And then he, he adds this. He says, he adds that if we hope to move past the superficialities of our culture, including our religious culture, we must be willing to go down into recreating silences into the inner world of contemplation, even if it sounds strange to modern ears. And when Jen, she mentioned that, and then I went and I read it, and I was like, man, he like set everything up for me today. The crazy thing is Richard Foster wrote that in 1978. Think about where culture's gone in the last 41 years. And he was writing that already back then. And so like those NASA astronauts have to prepare for silence, we do as well in our lives. We, we actually have to learn how to practice silence and solitude because it doesn't come naturally to us, and our world doesn't naturally go to it. We, we just, we go to lots of busyness. And so, this morning, I want to I draw on the practice of Jesus. Out of, out of this desire that we have to following the way of Jesus, what do we learn from the rhythm and the practice of his life on earth? What, what do we learn by how Jesus walked, how he lived on this earth? And I want to I want to talk about three things that the practice of silence and solitude is um, as we begin to prepare for this time of prayer and fasting tomorrow as a church. Now, I want to encourage you to use these next two weeks to integrate silence and solitude into your daily life, to, to be active in practicing this discipline in your life, that you'll be finding time for it. Because this has incredible, incredible ability to draw you closer to Jesus. You will experience God. You will be in communion with God in a new way through silence and solitude. So, 
want to read a verse here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark 1. I'm going to read one verse, Mark 1.35. Really simple and yet profound what Jesus says here of Jesus. It'll be on the screen behind me too. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So I want to talk first about how silence and solitude is an intentional practice for us. When, when we read this of Jesus, when you read the, the context around that verse, he's in the midst of a very demanding season of life. The, the expectations of people around Jesus were high. They were coming to him. There was expectations being put on him. And yet he was intentional in getting away. He was intentional in going to a place to be alone and to be in the quiet with God. And the word there for desolate place, it's the same one used elsewhere in the Gospels to describe where uh, the place that Jesus would withdraw to, mean, like it would refer to, he would go to the desert or to the wilderness. It was, that word is, it was talking about a secluded place where he went to meet with his father. Now, we, we need to define what we're talking about here because our culture is all into me time. Like, we, we love me time. And, and we, we talk about it in, in many, many different ways. And so, even as Christians, there might be a tendency to respond to this idea of time with God, of saying, like, what do you mean time with God? Like, God is everywhere. So, like, God is with me, and I'm, I'm, God is always with me. And we can think like that. But this, this isn't simply a state of mind. So we're not, we're not talking about, like, having a state of mind. This is about an intentional action in actually cultivating a practice of creating a space for time with God, a very intentional time. This is creating a proactive discipline, if you will, in our lives to protect ourselves against the reactive tendencies of our culture. And, and our culture recreates this reactive tendencies all the time. We, in general, if you look at, um, just look at how culture is living, and it's a very reactive sort of life. And what becomes appar very apparent in scriptures that we have to be intentional about this practice if it is to be in our lives. You won't gravitate to it naturally. And so we need to define what we mean when we talk about this silence and solitude. So we've, we've got to look here at Jesus' example. This, this is about alone time with God. This is about being in the quiet. It's not having external noise. It's a solitary place with no one around. So this might be good, and you might find that it's relaxing, but it's not having alone time, folding laundry, and watching Netflix. Nothing against that at times, as long as you're watching something that's PG. No. It's not that. That's not what we're talking about. So there's, there's two elements to silence and solitude with God. First, it's external silence. So it's literal silence. You are going to a place with silence. That silence, and, and you'll notice this if you do it. Even do it 
do it for 20 seconds at your dinner table before you pray or after you pray with, with your family. Just say, okay, now we're going to have a time of just silence. And you'll notice the neurological, biological effect on our bodies of just silence. And there's a whole bunch of science behind that. So it's external silence. It's also internal silence. Now, internal silence is the hardest thing to achieve because our minds are always going. We've got a list of tasks or a list of things we got to get done or there's things pressing on us. And so to have internal silence is like our minds can be just all over the place, just going to this and that. This is about being present with ourselves. This is about having no distractions so that we can actually begin processing, okay, where is my heart at? Where is my soul at? It's about an intentional time of forming space to do something with God. That's the, very, that's the crucial element. You're doing something with God and with yourself. Richard Foster, when he, he talks about this um, in his one chapter, and he talks about actually creating a space in our home for this. So he says, like, he says if you're building a home, put a, a space, a small space, where that is your, your place you can go for silence and solitude. And he says, so he, and it's really interesting. He talks about it in churches. He talks about it in homes. And I thought, that's profound, like to have an actual place where you can go. Because we have to be fostering this. We have to prepare and condition ourselves for this practice because of how foreign it is to us. We simply, by and large in our culture, we don't make this a practice anymore. A few years back, I, uh, I went for my first full day retreat. I went on a, on a silent retreat by myself to St. Benedict's Monastery just outside the perimeter here outside of Winnipeg. And uh, I was really excited for it, really like just looking forward to that time with God. And about half an hour into it, I could already feel myself getting antsy. I could feel myself getting anxious. Like, what am I going to do with all this time? What, like, and I was like, I want to read something. I, I want to watch something. I want to do something. And I, and I could feel that pull in me of like, I'm not doing anything. And it, and it actually, there was parts of that day, when I look back on it, it felt like withdrawal. Like it felt like I was going through withdrawal of what, how I was used to functioning. And uh, I don't think, I'm not alone in this. So John Mark Comer, he's a, he's a pastor in the U.S. who he's delved into a bunch of this stuff. He's written on it and, uh, and speaking about it. And he says that when they... Uh, they go through this with their church. He said what they do is they caution people about the experience of silence and solitude. Because he says, typically the first feelings that the majority of people are going to experience in silence and solitude is anxiety. You're going to actually feel it. He says, and then it's gonna, what's going to follow is a whole range of emotions through you. As in, he says, depression, anger, insecurity, shame, Everything that we try and medicate in our lives, and I'm, when I say medicate, through a whole host of means. So through noise, through busyness, through Netflix, through social media, through NFL football, the whole list, 
We medicate ourselves against feeling things in ourselves. We stuff it down. I know I've talked about this before, and we don't actually think about it. And what silence and solitude does is it has a way of bringing all that stuff up to the surface, the good and the bad. And when we do this, what it allows us to do is it allows us to look at these things, how we feel, and we begin to contemplate, why am I feeling this emotion? You kind of almost look at it as a third party going, why am I feeling this right now? What is the root of that in my life? Okay, God, what do I, what can I do about that? And typically, um, when you read about this, when people move through this, what they find is they go through all these emotions, these unpleasant emotions that seem to rise up in them. But then, as they move through that, it's followed by this place of peace, compassion, freedom at an emotional level, followed by deep joy. So, there's an emotional process to silence and solitude. A massive emotional process. And and that's why we probably, in some ways, we tend to avoid it. We don't know what to do with it. Or we, we sort of do it. So, like, we go to a, a coffee shop or somewhere, and we plug in our earphones, and we have a book, and we think that's silence and solitude. It, and it is. It's a way of, it is slowing down, but it's not silence and solitude like we're speaking of how Jesus operated. What we need to see is how through the Gospels, how intentional it was for Jesus, and that it was not only an intentional, but it was actually a consistent practice that kept him connected and sustained to the Father. So, why don't you flip over to Luke? I want to read a verse from Luke, Luke 5, 16. Luke 5, 16, it'll be behind me as well. Really short verse. How many words is that? Four, six... Nine, nine verses, at least in the ESV. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Several, several translations, actually, they add into there often in verse 16, as the, the Greek seems to imply that this was an active, ongoing practice of Jesus, that it was an active sort of verb of him going. And the gospel certainly seemed to support that the this with several references of the Gospels of how Jesus would withdraw and commune with the Father and be with his Father. And as Richard Foster says, he cites this and then he says, so it should be for us as his followers. Jesus, he, he stated over and over and over again, he says, I'm, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I, I, am, I am operating in obedience to what the Father is showing me, what the Father is telling me. His actions were a result of obedience to what he was receiving. And, and this proximity that Jesus constantly referred to with the Father, it was a result of spending time together. Yeah, I was thinking about this, and I was like, okay, so being the Son of God, knowing that he's going to come down to earth, don't you think, like, like, in my mind, I think, why wouldn't Jesus have just gotten, like, the USB stick inserted into him, the download of everything he needed? He is God. 
And I, I'm just going to go through and do all this and be task-oriented and, and I, I'm going to accomplish this. Like, why didn't he do that before he came to earth? Because he could have. And yet he came, and I think he came in, he was fully human, fully God, but fully human. And I think he also came to show us the example of this is what it means to have relationship with the Father. This is, this is how I do it. This is how, and, and I don't think it was just that either. I think Jesus actually, while he was on this earth, he really needed that. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. So this, this was the pattern to how Jesus lived. He received the strength needed. This, this back and forth you see with Jesus where he's in community and then he's in silence and, and he's alone. He's in community and then he withdraws. And you see this throughout the Gospels. And that's also an, an important point too because it wasn't just all about being alone for Jesus. He was very, very engaged in community as well. Um, there, was, there was a sermon that he preached um, years later about Martin Luther King. He, he told this story in the sermon that he preached of a specific event that happened to him on the night of January 27th, 1956. So that period of time, he had just come out of leading the Montgomery bus boycott. So that was the whole Rosa Parks thing in the U.S. And Martin Luther was at the front of, uh, front of that. And they, so they'd gotten the segregation on the buses removed and had gone through all that. But he had, he had been on the receiving end of several death threats. He had recently been arrested at that time for going 30 in a 25 zone. And so the pressure on him was increasing. And he tells the story how he's, he's lying in bed that night and he can't sleep. He gets up, goes to the kitchen table, and he's just sitting at the kitchen table in the silence. And he said, all of a sudden, he said, there was an inner voice that spoke to me. He said, as clear as day. And this is what God, he, he took it as God speaking to him, said, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you to the end of the world. And Martin Luther, he said, that was the night that was the definitive night. He said, I was about to quit. I was about to let it all go. And he said, when God spoke to me that night, he said, I knew what I had to do. And we know what Martin Luther King became. It was interesting because author Cal Newport, he's a guy that's uh, written a lot on um, really restricting or eliminating social media technology in our lives, written a lot of books about it. And he, he raised a question out of that story, and he said, what if at that moment, in the silence of his kitchen, Martin Luther had had an iPhone? Would that moment have happened? Now, he's, he asked that because there's a recent Microsoft survey that just came out. They asked young adults about this, and they found that young adults said when, when they have nothing to do, when they feel like there's nothing to do, 76% of them admitted the first thing they do is reach for their phones. And, and I don't know, I mean, I don't know, am I a young adult? I, I, I guess technically I'm not, but I want to be in that category. It, it doesn't matter. I think a lot of us feel that though, and, and it, even more so like when we're discouraged or when we're sad, what, what is our tendency? 
we reach for that easy escape. And it is a very easy escape. And technology is really, really, really accommodating for us in this way. Like, do you remember, does anyone here remember boredom? Like, I, okay, so we were just coming out of the Christmas break with our kids. Happened like two days ago, I think even yesterday. I'm bored. And like, they say it in a way like, you need to let me do something because I'm so bored. And I looked at, I'm not going to say who it was, and I looked at them, and I said, you know, can I tell you something? I said, I'm, I'm reading a lot about men and women in the past through Christian history who have a lot of great things to say. And you know what? Boredom is good for us. And this particular child looked at me like, huh? Boredom is good. I remember growing up being like, I'm really bored. And somehow thinking that's a bad thing. But remember like standing in line at the coffee shop in the 90s when there was no smartphones and you'd have people standing in line not on their phones? You remember that? And people wouldn't be like engrossed to their own little world. They might actually look up. They might actually engage you with a conversation. They might smile at you. You might have a, a bit of like personal contact with someone. Instead of now, it's like we're all standing in line and... I'm, I'm guilty of it too. It's crazy, right? But it's also really alarming because it's doing something to our brains. They say like right now we have no idea the effects of what this is doing to our brains and we don't know in 50 years what the impact is going to be on people. And so th this invasion of technology in the privacy of everyday lives, it has significantly impacted and shifted culture. It's, it's the impact of the death of quiet in our lives. You think about this, it simply mainly used to just be TV. TV was the, the main sort of um, thing that would eliminate that in the home. But now, now you've got oodles of personal devices that never have to leave your side. They can be with you from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. You're consistently feeding this. So, have you ever considered the impact of all that in your life and in your home even as it relates to the practice of silence and solitude? Do, do, you, do we think about cultivating a life of deep inner stillness or even how you would cultivate that? Creating times for silence and reflection in your home. Henry Nouwen, how many of you have heard of Henry Nouwen? Gr really gifted psychologist, teacher. He, he spoke at length about the gift of solitude and how it affects us emotionally and spiritually. He, um, he talked about where we encounter our soul. Like everything going on inside of us. So fear, bitterness, anger, identity issues, just the list of it. And he talked about when we encounter that in that place with God, he talked about it being this place of conversion for us, where we actually receive God's love, where the, the love that we so desperately need, the stuff that's going on inside of us, 
And God meets us in that place. And how, he said, it's in that place and being in that place helps us bring that into our everyday lives where it becomes a practice. So he talked about how over time we will become increasingly thoughtful and have more of a non-anxious presence in our lives. He, he said we are we are emotionally, or sorry, emotional spiritual conduits. So everywhere we go, think about it. Someone comes into a room, whatever's going on in the room, someone, in, someone comes in crying. What happens? Immediately changes the temperature of the room. Someone comes into a room full of life, it changes the room. Someone comes into a room angry or upset, it changes the room. Why? Because we are emotional spiritual conduits. It always flows through us. I was thinking about this, and I mentioned this to Jess the other day, and I said, like, just assessing our, our extended family and how we have operated over the years and the whole thing of having a non-anxious presence. And that, that is, that's really challenging to me because I, I haven't grown up in that. I, that was never modeled for me. I don't think I had any grid for that until starting to, to come into some of this material and really begin to process it. But consider the atmosphere. Consider the presence when we talk about that that Jesus carried with him. Just when you, when you read what you read of Jesus and how he operated and how people flowed to him, think about the presence that Jesus flowed with. People flocked to him. Do you ever wonder why? People were drawn to him because of that. They were drawn to him because of his authenticity. There was something just refreshingly authentic about Jesus. That comes in our lives from the practice of silence and solitude. All right, last point. Third, third is. Silence and solitude is a normative practice. And I say that because I think sometimes we don't think it is. And I want to I put to us this morning that it very much is a normative practice in Scripture. So we see this after sending out his disciples. He sent them out to heal, to preach, to heal, to, uh, to heal the sick, preach the gospel in Mark 6. And later, verse 31 of that says Jesus, uh, they came back, they returned to Jesus, and he led them to a desolate place by themselves. So they come out of ministry, and he says, let's, let's go away. Let's go away to a desolate place. In, in the final hours of his arrest, Jesus took him and his disciples, and he withdrew into the garden of Gethsemane. He went to have silence and solitude. When the disciples tell him, they came to him in Mark, or sorry, Matthew 14, and they, they tell Jesus of John the Baptist's execution, and it says that Jesus withdrew and he went away to a desolate place. He withdrew to deal with the pain, with the emotions he was feeling. He withdrew to be with his Father. And so throughout the Gospels, we see this, this cultivating of this practice of silence and solitude. It was part of Jesus' life. It was part of the life of Jesus. And he led his followers in it as well. He modeled it for them. He led them into it. Jesus lived 
a life of time spent with the Father, and he lived a life of that connection with the Father and what flowed from that, that deep connection that flowed from his time with the Father. And so if that's not enough to convince you, Jesus speaks a lot about abiding with him. He says, you're called to abide with me, and you're called to abide with the Father. And maybe, I think, in the evangelical sort of stream of church, I don't think we've done this well. I, I think that we, we don't talk about it a lot. Um, it's something that's sort of in the orthodox traditions more. It's, it's more in some of those more liturgical traditions. And we just haven't spent a lot of time looking at this. We, we focus a lot on programs. We focus a lot on vision. We focus a lot on leadership development. We focus a lot on missions. Lots of good stuff. Lots and lots of profitable stuff. Not that we should pull back on that. But we need to contemplate and consider when Jesus speaks of abiding with him in Scripture, like what does that mean? Like, like not a theological sort of discussion on it and pulling apart the Greek to like, it. no, like what does it mean for you in your life to abide with Jesus? Because it's, he speaks really, really pointedly to it and really clearly. You, you, and you'll find loads of material over the centuries in the Christian faith of individuals doing deep contemplative reflection on what it means to have this union with Jesus and this intricate connection to silence and solitude. So you'll see it in Augustine. You'll see it in the Essenes. Uh, you'll see it in Brother Lawrence. You'll see it in the writings of St. John of the Cross. Uh, more recently, you see it in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He talks about it extensively. You t Henry Nouwen's another one I referenced. Thomas Merton. And you could pull a whole bunch of more contemporary examples, but there is a whole list of people in the Christian faith who have written on this. And Jesus spoke of this deep, intimate relationship that he experienced with the Father. And he invites us to experience this throughout the Gospels. There's this invitation to experience this. And, and probably really seen clearly in John 17, 26. He says there, he's praying, and he says, I, I made known to them your names, praying to the Father, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So another guy, Thomas Akempis, he wrote this famous book, I think it was in the 1500s, called The Imitation of Christ. But he calls this relationship a familiar friendship with Jesus. And Richard Foster, he, he speaks of sinking down into the life and light of Christ. So just think about that sort of, that picture of sinking down into the light and life of Christ, where the presence of God in your life moves from a theological dogma, as Foster calls it, into, and I love this, a radiant reality. Think about that. The presence of God in your life is not just some high-fluting theological assertion. It is a radiant reality that you are experiencing in your life. 
personal relationship with Jesus just becomes part of what it means to live daily for Christ. I, I think this is part of what Paul is speaking of in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, where he, he speaks there because it's so crazy off the charts what he says, and I think we kind of give it lip service. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Oh, <laughs> okay, right. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, like with a deep life of prayer is what he's talking about, and thanksgiving, prayer and supplication, we put the whole of our lives before God. So he's like, lay it all before God. Give it all, everything before him, and his peace, God's peace, which surpasses all rational understanding in your mind. Peace that passes all understanding. So that's anything that you can rationally think about with peace. Paul says it's, it's beyond all that. We'll, he says, well, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Think about that. How do you think that practically happens? Because Paul writes it like this is, this is part of living for Christ. Is, is it a willing of your emotions? Like you're going to will your emotions. Is it a state of mind? Is it peace that is, uh, peace that is attained by financial security and your life going well? I'm not anxious about anything. Oh yeah, because I feel financially secure and life's going pretty good. Remove that. How's your anxiety? So I think we have to really dig down into this. Or is what Paul is speaking about there, is it a result of consistent time spent in silence and solitude? Is it allowing God to speak to our hearts, being continually transformed emotionally, spiritually, as we lay our hearts before him. And he is removing those things from us. Because I, th I think the temptation is to regard this discipline of silence and solitude and other spiritual disciplines, you can throw some other ones in there, as optional. They are electives of the Christian life. I might take them, I might not, but I don't have to take them. They're certainly not needed. I can get by without them. I think this is the very practice that we desperately need to cultivate in our lives. It was a normative practice in the life of Jesus. It was part of how he functioned. And when we meet God in this, when you experience the presence of God and the deep work that happens in your soul because of that is you are in the presence of God. We, we experience this incredible deep impact where we know that we were made to commune with God like this. I mean, you can go through the Psalms, speak of it. You could, you could draw out a whole bunch of things from Scripture where it speaks of being with God. So I want to I wrap up this morning by just, just talking about some of the practical implications of this for our lives, because I think we've got to make this practical. We can talk about all this, but how are you going to make this part of your life going forward?
How will, you make, how will this happen Monday morning? How can you put this practice into being during prayer and fasting, but also how can you cultivate this you know, into your life? I, I certainly, I don't see this as just a, do this for two weeks as part of prayer and fasting, and then th- this is, this is a, a discipline for life. So, first I would say, start where you are at. Um, last week, I think at the end of my message, I encouraged us to, last week, to go into at least 15 minutes a day, and uh, Jess listened to my message after, and she's like, uh, so that, that recommendation you gave, I'm like, yeah, she's like, you don't think that might be a little much? I'm like, no. <laughs> she's like, well, are you used to doing this? And I said, well, I, yeah, I guess so. She's like, well, that's overwhelming. So, I'm sorry, I, I'm jo- all joking aside, if that was like, where you're like, hey, that, Paul, that was a little overwhelming, start where you are, wherever you're at. So, if it's five minutes, whatever, I'm not even going to put a time on it, just start where you're at. Um, Something that I, I think is a, a good recommendation is pair silence and solitude with a hot drink you enjoy. And I don't think that's heretical. Pair it with, with a nice cup of coffee or a nice cup of tea, whatever, if you like something else, hot cocoa. The point is make it something to look forward to. Like I look forward to early in the morning, my coffee, and time in the silence with God. Um, and, and I think that's, that's another point. Morning is a great way to make this a daily habit. Um, there's less busyness in the morning generally. There's less commitments in the morning. You try to do, if you try to do it late at night, it's just there's a whole host of things that can come into your schedule at, in the evenings. I, I would encourage you um, to start in the morning, but find a time that works. I would also say start with something to anchor your mind in God. So as you come into this, whether it's reading a psalm, whether it's reading a short devotional, uh, whether it's maybe you even have like the Book of Common Prayer, that's another really great thing to use, something liturgical, just to get your mind thinking, practicing the presence of God. There's something about practicing the presence of God in our lives. Um, Another one I'd say, lose your phone, lose your device. L- just lose it. Like, don't, do not have it anywhere near you. Um, you don't have to agree with me. Phones are just really, really, really distracting and tempting. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I want to check the weather. And all of a sudden five minutes have gone by and you've been sucked into the abyss of your phone screen. Just don't have your phone with you. Um, Okay, because I'm not going to go on the tangent, but if you're in silence and solitude with the Lord, and all of a sudden you hear a vibration coming from your phone, you think you're going to ignore that? Nope. Um, Let go of the checkbox mentality in your life. So as in, I got to do this. Like, Do you know what I mean by that? Don't give yourself in this tons of grace. Because you are going to find yourself distracted, mind-wandering. You're going to find yourself like, I just got to do this and this. Let go of that. Don't, don't be, as much as possible, don't be task-oriented in this. Just allow yourself to be in the silence and solitude with God. And 
so as far as cultivating this discipline in your life, um, schedule it into your life. I, I think that's a really important point. If you want to grow in this, you have to schedule it. Like, I am going to get up now 15 minutes earlier to make this a reality. I, this, is, this is my time. I'm going to, whatever, half an hour, whatever it is, I'm going to, this is holy time with me and the Lord that I am going to schedule into my life. Um, husbands, just reminded me of this this week. Husbands, encourage your wives to take a day away on a silent retreat. Send them away. Light of the prairies, just here, just close by. You can do it there. But again, it's, it's allowing room in our lives to cultivate this, encouraging our spouses to, hey, do that. Go and do that. And, and remember that this, this all requires practice. This is the practice of silence and solitude. It is a discipline. It's something that we have to grow in. Astronauts need to practice for silence and solitude. So do we. So, we're going we're gonna to close this morning um, by entering into a time of communion together. And we're going we're gonna to actually, as part of this, we're going to practice silence together for the next several minutes. We're going to intentionally invite God to speak to our hearts and just be in the quiet. So communion is really, one, one of the things communion is, is it's entering into fellowship with God. It is receiving the life of Jesus. It, it also leads us into a place of self-examination. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 11. It is, it is for those who have received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We, we do this to remember Jesus' death for us and our need for his ongoing connection in our life. We remind ourselves of that. So, me, if, if you feel, if, if this morning you're like, I have not made that decision to receive Jesus as Lord of my life, or you, you're saying, you know, I, I think I need to abstain this morning for whatever reason from communion, there, there is no judgment there. There's allowance for that. And we can all be part of this still in being in this room. So, just want to make that clear. So, here's what we're going to do. I want to I invite you to just, on your own, get up and to go grab your bread and your juice. We won't, we won't serve it, per se. I'm going to invite you to come up and just grab it, go back to your seats, and then spend the next number of minutes. We're just going to be silent before the Lord. And just allow the Lord, just silence your hearts to what is going on inside of me. What is, what's going on right now? What am I feeling? What does God want to speak to me out of that? We're going to spend a few minutes in that, silence before the Lord, just welcoming the presence of God for ourselves. And then, we're going to, then we'll take communion. I'll guide us in taking communion together because it is, it is a corporate thing that we do. But is that clear? All right, so if you want to grab your bread and juice, let's try and make that quick so that we can get into silence and solitude. And then we'll, and then we'll uh, take a few minutes for that.